How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Our topic today is climate and science education in the San Francisco Bay Area and around the country. Many young people are well informed about the impacts of fossil fuels and the promise of an economy running on clean power. But science has become a contentious topic in some communities, and we'll talk about challenges in bringing environmental education beyond the left and right coasts. During the next hour, we'll discuss teaching our children well and include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have two students and two social entrepreneurs who have founded national organizations. Bridger Murray is a sixth grader in Marin, active with Cool the Earth campaign. Rosemary Davies is a graduate of Berkeley High School Green Academy. In the summer of 2012, she went on an Arctic expedition with Students on Ice, a Canadian educational organization. She received a Climate One scholarship to, uh, to go on that trip. Mike Haas is founder of the Alliance for Climate Education and CEO of Orion Renewable Energy Group. He's also a financial contributor to Climate One. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Carlene Cullen, founder and executive director of Cool the Earth. She'll come up and join us. So please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Bridger, let's begin with you. I want to ask each of the participants today that your sort of uh, your story of how you became uh, conscious about the climate. And I understand you played uh, Mr. Carbon in a school yes. play. That must have been fun. Were you Mr. Carbon a good guy or bad guy? Uh, he was usually a bad guy. Usually a bad guy. Good okay. Times. So tell us about that play and how you got involved in oh, climate um, education. So uh, the green team, as it was called. Uh, came to my school, I think, when I was in third or second grade, and it came there. I didn't really, uh, I was in second grade or third grade, I can't remember, obviously, so um, I I didn't really know what it was about, you know, green team, what's this, but I decided to join it because I thought it was some club, you know, so I joined it, and, uh, no. Do you join lots of clubs? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm usually, I like activities and stuff, um, but it was, I thought it was some <laughs> I thought it was, uh, you know, some club, or as I said before. Um, so I joined it, and I was like, hey, this is actually pretty cool. It was, you know, uh, talked about climate change, green, uh, reducing carbon dioxide, and that kind of stuff, and then it took off from there with Cool the Earth, and I started getting in skits, um, that kind of thing. I think I played Mother Earth a few times. Um, I was... As I brought this cartoonish uh, polar bear hat too, that's um, was one of the costumes that you wear, and you know your head <laughs> during the skits. And it was uh, you could uh, wear this. There was I think some of the characters were Coda the polar bear and those kind of things. So. And the polar bear chases Mr. Carbon. Yeah, they okay. chase them around uh, the stage usually. So. <laughs> and does the play have a happy ending? Yeah, usually. It's usually well. Sometimes it's 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 um sometimes it's kind of almost a cliffhanger. It's like, you know, Mr. Carbon is like inside the reaches of Code of the Polar Bear and says, "You can help," you know, kind of something like that. He points the audience. So. It's kind of like Hollywood. They had test market different endings, yeah, I guess. Okay. Exactly. Um, the next. And then you got involved with Cool Cool the Earth, and you started to take specific actions at home. Tell us about some of the actions that you did at home to save energy. Yeah, um, one of the things that uh, Cool the Earth brought to our school uh, was like a bright yellow coupon book, and it had various uh, quote-unquote coupons in there that were basically slips of paper that you would fill out, and they would have, um, I think it was the amount of CO2 that you could reduce by, they had actions on it, and the amount of CO2 you could reduce by doing the actions. And it was usually something very simple, but very it was effective, um, such as, you know, bringing uh, aluminum metal water bottles instead of plastic ones, um, 
riding your bike to school, um, you know, that type of thing. Food? Yeah, there was um, some stuff about, I think it was cutting back on, uh, I think there was like a meat-free day once a week, trying to do something like that. Um, Meatless Mondays, a lot of people yeah, do. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. Mondays. Um, and I think it was eat a pound less of beef a week, which reduced CO2 emissions. And sometimes you get lazy and don't do the thing. Yes. With, yeah. Yeah. Um, various times. The coupon book was not something I would do because I just took it as, you know, extra homework, I suppose. Um, so I, uh, but I would, I would still do the actions. I would, you know, flip through it. I would do the actions. The coupon book wasn't something that worked for me, but it was really big hit with everybody else and it really got kids doing it, so. Thank you. Uh, Rosemary Davies, tell us how you went from growing up on a chestnut farm to the Green Academy at Berkeley High School. Um, let's see. So I grew up on a chestnut orchard, my grandparents' farm, and that really surrounded me with nature, open space. It gave me an, an innate connection that I was a part of nature instead of being outside of it. And so when we moved in the city 10 years later and w- it was so industrial, and there were so many buildings, and everything was on oil. It was it was a little shocking at first, but then I guess I kind of adapted to it, and I kind of still brought that, um, that kind of farm, small-town perspective. And I went from middle school to high school, and I kept trying new things, like whatever interested me. So, like, equilibristic juggling, I tried that. <laughs> Um, I was into yo-yoing for a while, drumming, then guitar, and then pen making, and then creative reuse projects. And then when it came time for high school, I chose the Green Academy initially because my sister was in it, and it was easier for my mom, who was a single parent. Um, But then I got really into it, and it was helpful at Berkeley High School where it's a zoo, and there's 3,400 students there, and it's hard to really to really, I guess, stay motivated and stay focused, that the Green Academy helped me by tying me back to nature and bringing me to the city where I, I, still, I still kind of saw my environmental impact. I still could get involved with like organizations like Save the Bay, local food markets. So it was, it was great. It's, nature has always followed me. I've, I've been over to Berkeley High School and attended, and the students there have a impre- very impressive knowledge of me- measuring their impacts and uh, vampire loads at home and all yeah. sorts of very sophisticated things. Uh, tell us briefly about, then you went to the Arctic last year on this two-week expedition with students from around the world, a lot of Americans and Canadians and others, and how did that impact you? That, it showed me that my... What I did had real-life consequences. Like, my family always told me, whatever you do or don't do has a consequence. And I always kind of knew that. But going to the Arctic, it really reinforced it. And it's it helped me see that, oh, my God, my carbon footprint affects all these people in the Arctic, all the wildlife, people's futures. And it also helped me see my American perspective and what I, my I guess, my identity. Great. Well, we'll get back to some of the things you learned about methane and other things uh, later. I'd like to, uh, to ask Mike Haas, about 20 years ago, you started to become aware you were getting a Ph.D., you start, you get involved in energy. So tell us about your path to founding the Alliance for Climate Education. Sure. I uh, never finished my Ph.D. Um, I think maybe two or three people in the world cared about what I was working on, and I decided I wasn't one of them because... Um, <laughs> I started becoming far more aware of, of the risks of, of CO2 concentrations and started worrying about the atmosphere. And as an aerodynamicist at the time, I was thinking, what, you know, what's an aerodynamicist to do about this? Um, got drawn into renewable energy, so did that for a while. I um, was fortunate to uh, start a couple of small companies, and, and over the course of about 10 years, uh, put a lot of wind energy projects in service in the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, but it sort of struck me. I was at a panel like this, and I was a renewable guy, and there was a Mr. Carbon. He wasn't 12 years old. He was a natural gas exec somewhere. But but I was a renewable guy on an energy panel. Somebody asked me, um, so, you know, how much wind have you done? And I tried to explain it in megawatts, which is kind of a hard thing to understand. He said, well, all the plants you built, 
like how many homes could that power in a year? And I thought about it for a bit and uh, kind of came up rough numbers, sort of a million or a million and a half homes worth of electricity that the wind projects that I did. And there was a little polite applause in the, in the audience, I suppose. But I, I was just, I came home and I was really unsettled because uh, I felt like I got into this because I came to the conclusion this was a very big risk with extraordinary consequences. And I felt like I wasn't moving the needle far enough or fast enough and decided that... Uh, the only way that we're going to be successful in taking the actions that we need to, um, I think, are, are have to begin with education. I think you've got to invest in that. We've got to bridge the gap between what scientists know about the threat and what the general public understands. And I think that the most effective way and the quickest way to get there is to invest in young people. They deserve to know what the scientists have concluded. And uh, that's just they're just not getting it. In our, in our schools. That's not to say there aren't some terrific teachers in schools doing amazing work, but for the most part, they're not getting this. And I think it's hard to, to develop the will to make this a priority um, without the information. And so that kind of led me to, um, to start ACE. And happy to be sitting actually next to, which I found out in the conference room, Rosemary, um, who I think was a freshman at one of our first assemblies in 2009 at Berkeley High. So. Um, Great to have been inspired. Yeah. So tell us briefly about the organization. You present high school demonstrations by high schoolers to high schoolers around the country, and then we'll ask uh, Carlene to come up and we'll continue. But tell us a little bit about... Educators a bit north. So they're typically sort of um, maybe just out of college. So they're young 20-somethings. But we have educators that go into high schools and give assembly presentations. That's our first engagement. Um, In about... Three years, we've been in front of about a million and a half high school students. So um, we've demonstrated that if you tell this story right, it's a story that you have to really tell right. It's hard to see the villain, right? Um, But if you tell the story right, young people engage. Young people, you can shoot straight with young people. You You can tell them what the scientists have concluded. And then more importantly, you can tell them what solutions there are out there and what opportunities this will open up in addressing what will be a big challenge for them. And so it begins with these educators that go and do these uh, pretty cool, you know, a lot of music and video and animation assembly presentations. And our educators follow back up with students um, in clubs that we form to take on projects in their schools and communities. And Rosemary, do you remember seeing this presentation when you were at Berkeley High School? Yeah, twice actually. Ah. Yeah. And And what impact did it have? Um, so it had an impact on the environmental club that I was a part of, Eco Community Club at the time. And so we started doing the Biggest Loser competition right. last year. And that, although we never really got to complete it because of a lack of involvement, um, it's shame. still, it's shame. You know, you, you got to, like, make young people feel connected to these issues. And then, like, really, I think... For, for me, at least, in the beginning, it was hard to be like, climate change, why, should, why is it important? Why should I care? But once you, I guess, when you bridge that, you, you really hit something special. But you're saying it's tough to sustain a level of concern and engagement, yeah. right? Because people move on to other things. Mm-hmm. And, they, oh. and they tend to put it on the back burner from, like, my general impressions. Like, you put it on the back burner for the economy, for, for politics. But the thing is, all these issues are interconnected. So mm-hmm. it's more complicated. Bridger Murray, do you find that too sometimes? It's like, well, sometimes you recycle, sometimes you don't. It's tough to keep up the Yeah, yeah, and then sometimes, you know, it's like not, you know, why should I recycle? I mean, it's not like, it's not not making, I can't see visually an impact or anything, but then when you uh, look into it, I guess, uh, you know, it all adds up and it can lead to an apocalyptic environment. Really, so. Bridger Murray, I've been doing this five years, is the youngest guest I've ever had her appear on stage. So please give him a round of applause for doing this. Bridger Murray, and we're going to ask Bridger and Carlene. Very impressive. Uh, Sixth grader, 12 years old, very impressive. So Carlene Cullen's going to join us now, and she is the founder of the Cool the Earth uh, campaign. And Carlene, I'd like to ask you the welcome. Thank you. I'd <laughs> uh, like to ask you the same question. How did you become sort of climate conscious and get into funding, founding uh, Cool the Earth campaign? Well, you asked me probably the uh, most difficult question of the evening uh, in that 
I wasn't very climate aware. You were you saw an inconvenient truth and you were I skeptic saw, and said it was overblown. I saw an inconvenient truth and I thought this just simply couldn't be real. You know, and so at first I thought this isn't happening. Let me go back and do some research. But it really wasn't the science that got me. Um, this is a personal story that uh, I don't know how many people saw an inconvenient truth, but uh, you know, Al Gore nearly lost his son, and he shared that with us in the uh, in the movie. And about three years prior, uh, my husband and I also had nearly lost our son, who was three at the time. And you know, I sat there in that film, and I just thought. I can't let this happen to my children. I've experienced this. I sat by the hospital bed for weeks not knowing the outcome. And it took me in such a way, and I thought, what am I doing with my life? If I'm, I'm aware of what's happening, if the science is right, I have to take action. And I believe that children like Bridger, younger children, you know, we work with K through 8, that they have an ability to embrace the topic to take charge of their own future and to have an intergenerational approach to this issue because everybody says, well, little kids, what are they going to learn? By the time they grow up, it'll be too late. Uh, so we have an intergenerational approach where the kids get engaged with the cliffhanger of the uh, assembly, which I love that because it really is a cliffhanger in that, uh, you know, in the end, the polar bears are saying, you know, the one polar bear is wearing an iPod and dancing around and saying, hey, kids, are you going to do something or will you help me? And Mr. Carbon's saying, no, forget about them. And uh, and it's up to the kids to make a difference and to engage their families in the action. And, yeah, we don't know how this story is going to turn out. Mm -hmm. And some would say we are headed toward a cliff uh, on carbon if we keep going the, the, the rate we're going. Um, you also have some stories in Kenfield where, so your program is in schools. Um, there was a case in Kenfield where a parent found out about it, didn't like it. The Republican National Committee got involved. Tell us about that. Well, <clears throat> we had moved from New York City, where I thought I'd seen it all. Uh, we lived there for 20 years, and we uh, started this. We wanted to just take action at our kids' elementary school and uh, just bring a local, something we had developed, something I developed and wrote some plays, et cetera, and the coupon book. And, um, you know, we had the uh, approval of the superintendent, the school principals, et cetera, and at the last minute, um, one of the school board members objected and said the whole plan had to be canceled uh, and it was suddenly in the press and the Republican National Committee became involved and, you know, eventually we've had things. The Drudge Report has picked up on it. The Wall Street Journal has written things. Um, Big all time. very, yeah, you know, I, had, I was so naive. I got a call from a Wall Street Journal uh, journalist and I thought it was one of my friends from New York. It was a 212 area code. And they said to Wall Street Journal, I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> and she said, no, really, I'm the Wall Street Journal. And I'd like to interview you for a story, this was about five years ago, about kids and climate. Of course, with the Drudge Report and the Wall Street Journal, they were all very negative slant on, um, on climate change and engaging families in climate. And there was even one man in Nevada who was arrested for harassing someone involved in... Uh... Yeah, I, it's, it's uh, one of the principals at one of the schools became so harassed that the, uh, she finally had to call the police on one of the parents to say that, you know, this was, this was turning into a big problem. We had, for a number of years, at every school, some skeptic who was very vocal about um, the program and would bring in computer slideshows to show the, the school elementary school principal why the climate science was wrong. And, uh, you know, that's diminished over the past year and a half. I'm not exactly sure why, uh, but we don't run into resistance. We've only been kicked out of one school, and uh, everybody can probably guess what state that was in, which was Texas. <laughs> uh, but we're in 23 states. We just ran last year in Shawnee, Kansas, one of the most successful schools we've had. Uh, so it's, uh, it's definitely become a more accepted um, program. I don't, I don't want to dwell on the resistance, but Mike Haas, you also have a story of a Texas school where the TV truck showed up, and there's, you know, these things can get really right. excited. Maybe slightly unfair, you know, to be focusing on Texas. As it happened, uh, it was a year that we were launching. Um, similar story, uh, one of our educators came in. It was a school not quite the size of Berkeley High, 1,500 kids. I think they did four or five assemblies. These are one-hour assemblies. Went great. You know, it was really deeply appreciated. These assemblies are offered at no cost. They meet a lot of, they address standards, science standards in various states. Um, 
And the next morning, our lead educator in, in the area uh, got a call around 5 a.m. from the assistant principal, who was sort of the gatekeeper and arranged to have us in. And I think he'd you know, received 100 emails you know, since 9 o'clock that night, had Channel 7 news truck idling in front of the school. Um, and, and again, that's, that's definitely an exception. Um, we've found, for the most part, that uh, you know, schools embrace this, that, that, but they just need someone to offer it. And, and I think schools also recognize, as we do, um, how important it is to invest in, in young people. I think they've got an authenticity, a sincerity. They're forming behaviors, impressions for, for life. And, um, and I think um, you know, that's why we typically don't have these types of issues, but it happens once in a while. All right, let's move on. One of the themes we often talk about here at Climate One is the balance between hope and fear in terms of motivation, messaging, et cetera, because you look at the science, some of this is really scary, but there's a lot of hope and optimism. So I'd like to ask all of you, sort of in your own messaging and and communication, how do you balance that hope and fear? Because a little of both, and perhaps different people respond differently. Mike, you know, how do you balance that? Again, we focus on high school students. So we're we're in 2,000 high schools probably around the country. and we take the approach that we're, we're a science-based organization, and we think, again, that the young people deserve to hear what the consensus science is on this issue, understand the risk. And we think it's important to shoot straight with, with young people. Um, they can handle it. And so we do focus a bit on what some of the consequences might look like, particularly in their areas, You know, making it local, telling the story right, seeing how it will impact them, not in 30 years, but even today, some of these impacts. But we don't dwell on it. We put it there because we think it's important that they get a sense of the urgency. Why should this be a priority? As Rosemary said, there's a lot of things that aren't right in the world. Why should this be a priority? So we do we do point that out. But then we focus far more on solutions, far more on the paths, the opportunities they can take. It is really hard. We've heard that from um, both Bridger and Rosemary. I think it's this is a challenging problem. I think it's easy to, to disengage. It's easy to be overwhelmed. And to think, what in the heck can I do, you know, sort of on my own? That's why we put so much faith in young people, to try and build a, connect, a connected community, um, you know, starting their school, branching out in their region, so that they feel they're not alone. There are a lot of young people out there that feel this way, and I believe young people, again, give us our best opportunity to create the space and let our leaders know that it's safe to do the right thing to mitigate this risk. We'll get Carlene on hope and fear in a minute, but uh, Rosemary, uh, Mike mentioned sort of local impacts. How will climate change affect Berkeley High School? We have high school students in the audience from high schools around the Bay Area. How will climate change affect Berkeley High and other high school students, uh, people in high school today? Okay, so the Bay Area is obviously going to be affected by the sea level rising, and for Berkeley High School, a lot about the climate conditions, too. And... You know, high schools across the world are going to be are going to be having to confront this problem, and they're going to be have. And you're also going to have to confront the problems of the families of these students too, who rely on our environment. So up in the Arctic, whether it's subsistence and it's, whether if it's based on hunting and it's based on the trade there, or even here where where people are employed by like the Richmond Refinery or by nonprofits. So. Really, it's it's kind of like everyone. It affects anyone. It's inescapable because we're already in nature and we're already in the environment, and it's already happening too. So I guess there's a lot of fear that like there's going to be resistance, and it's like with any idea, like there's obviously going to be some opposition, but there's a consensus that we have to see that climate change is real and that we have an impact on it, and that we can change. We can change our anthropogenic effects. We can change our human consequences. So there's hope. There's definitely hope. So, Carlene, back to hope and fear. You deal with younger kids, and some yes. people say it's not appropriate to scare younger children. Right, So right. you've got to balance well, differently than maybe than, than the high schoolers With the might. exception of my own children who I want to, to scare, yeah. I agree. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. The, uh, so when, when we started this, uh, I went and consulted with some principals, lots of school teachers, moms, had a mom advisory group to talk about how we bring these serious topics to young, young children. And uh, one of the things that we do is that uh, we also are a free program, is that a, a parent or a teacher volunteer at that local school actually runs the program. 
And the teachers are typically the characters on stage donning these pullover hats and Mr. or Miss Carbon costumes. So they're people that the students are very familiar with already. Uh, it's a certain trust built into that. Um, but secondly, uh, you're familiar with Tom and Jerry? Uh, yes, sure. Yeah, the cartoons. cartoons. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, our assembly is a uh, is basically a big Tom and Jerry um, a copy of Tom and Jerry. You know, you've got Mr. Carbon chasing after the polar slapstick bear. Fun, slapstick yeah. fun. It's cartoonish. It's very silly. The kids are never afraid. But they come out and they know what carbon dioxide is. They know what methane is. They know about renewable energies. They know about the importance of electric vehicles, but all in a very fun, upbeat way. Uh, and most importantly, they know when they walk out of there that they can use the coupon book or not, like Bridger, he just took action. Uh, you know, they can, I don't care, take the, take the actions. Uh, they can use this coupon book that can help them know how they can reduce their carbon emissions and ways that they can also engage their parents in reducing the carbon emissions. Because trying to get adults to pay attention to this when they've got busy lives, even parents who are concerned but can't st- take a step back to take action, that their kids can come in, and when they learn about this together, then they can really start moving forward as a family. So it's really no fear at all at this at this age level. And there's a number of uh, very prominent stories of, of children who've gotten to their parents who are very influential. Uh, John Doerr in Silicon Valley. We had recently Bob Inglis, former Republican uh, congressman from South Carolina, who was a climate denier. When his first term in Congress, one of his daughters got a hold of him and flipped him, and now he's... Uh, he lost his congressional seat partly because he was, said, I'm a Republican and I believe in the science. So mm-hmm. kids getting to their parents can, yeah. can be highly effective. I'd like to ask Mike Haas, how do you measure the impact? You know, you could have a really, you know, Rosemary is here a couple years after hearing the presentation. It seems like it had an impact on her life. She was already on this path. But how do you know that this stays with people down the road when you've got one hour perhaps with a student out right. of a very busy... So, so we got together with... Um, a few of the sort of the, the experts in the world um, in terms of how to communicate climate science. Um, and we came up with some surveys that we go in to test this, because you're absolutely right. Is this, are we doing a good thing? Um, and and we A lasting that. impact. Yeah. A, a lasting impact, right. Because what we're trying to do is get started on a path to behavior change, and that's hard. It is hard, but we need to do it. It's, it's just because it's hard doesn't mean we can't try to do it. What we try to do with these assemblies is to create an extraordinarily memorable experience so that they have a first, um, for some of them it may be the first time that they've been uh, been in front of something like this, and some that have heard it before, maybe we've connected the dots in a different way, so it's, it's more lasting and meaningful. But that first memorable experience, an awakening moment, what we do is we measure um, surveys. So we've gone out and done thousands of pre-assembly surveys and then post-assembly surveys after the assembly and then you know, in some uh, uh, deferred periods of time um, to measure, you know, knowledge, but more importantly, attitudes and behaviors. And what we've seen is among the million and a half students that we've been in front of, our um, our analysis is that we've got uh, something like sort of a 50% shift in attitudes and behaviors. So taking people from disengaged to concerned, from concerned to alarmed. And we think that, and, and the researchers um, that have looked at this uh, have never seen anything like it in a, in a one-hour engagement. They've seen shifts like this in terms of attitude and behaviors, but over maybe many months or many years with multiple intervention points. And I think, again, it comes down to telling the story right. So is it enough? No. Is it necessary? We believe that it is. It's this first memorable experience, but then what we got to do, and that's why our educators go back and continue to work with the, with the kids um, afterwards. It's a fantastic presentation. It's on the web. Uh, I've seen it a couple times live. It's been to my son's school. I highly recommend it to anyone who, who hasn't seen it. Um, Carlene, how do you measure the impact? I don't know if you have time to yet to know that when kids get into high school, are they still remembering <laughs> Mr. Carbon? We don't have that sort of longitudinal study yet. Uh-huh. Uh, but about two years ago, uh, we collaborated with some researchers at Stanford University who did a full year-long evaluation, three-phase evaluation of the program. And uh, some of the things that they discovered were, number one, that the kids were engaged, but also that they went home and told their parents about what was happening at school uh, with climate change and with the assembly. Uh, And we also found out, we did some focus groups, or they did uh, some focus groups with parents, and over and over again, the moms largely would report in and say, 
my kid comes home and says, you know, I'm only using these sorts of water bottles or we need to reduce our carbon emissions and, you know, to some kind of funny things where they're taking a shower and it's supposed to take a seven-minute shower and the kid's banging on the door saying, it's time to get out, you know. So, uh, you know, mostly good things, but it's a really great symbiotic relationship because parents have reported that, of course, they're aware of climate change, but they really hadn't made the time. So they work together to, uh, to remind each other in the household. And that, in and of itself, extends the length of the program, the length of the impact. The, um, I think looking forward, we have uh, an opportunity that um, we think will extend the life of the program significantly. And I'm not sure if I should... Uh, to go into that or wait a little bit? On well, you, well, one, I think you're, uh, you're looking at games, and games yeah. is a way that that's one thing that's interesting uh, in terms of making these funds and uh, fun and sort of the you know video game where it's you know Rosemary talked about the Biggest Loser. Right. How can games be a, a, right. a factor? Right. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I am uh, frustrated by is the that we need to get there faster. We need to keep expanding. We know the program works. Uh, we found out through the Stanford evaluation uh, that 38% of the parents said that after the program concluded, they went on to uh, take more expensive retrofits, they thought about green purchases, and they got engaged civically. They wrote to their newspaper, wrote to a ele- local elected official. So we wanted to keep expanding that, but uh, reaching more and more students, more and more families. And uh, we have just announced recently that we are partnering with Guitar Hero, the founders of Guitar Hero, uh, which is the number one grossing game in the world ever. And, uh, and the two founders of that are going to be partnering with us. They're personal friends of mine. And, uh, and we're working on bringing all the mechanisms that we've learned over the past few years, the past six years, from Cool the Earth's school-based program and bringing that in to where kids live. Uh, which is on their PDAs or their mom and dad's iPhones or iPads, uh, but still having that same interaction. There's going to be a story about polar bears and Mr. Carbon. There will be actions they can take from the cloud. There will be things the families can do, um, and they'll be using some fun technology to authenticate that they took action, some photojournaling or uh, you know, Instagram sort of technology. So it's, a, uh, it's an exciting project, and we, uh, we just learned that we um, – we'll, we're in advanced stages, is the, the language, with the MacArthur Foundation uh, for funding this project. So um, we're very excited about that. Well, let's ask Rosemary and also Michael about can being green be fun? Being green can totally be fun. I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, okay, I'm in university right now, and one of the fun things that I do is the Residence Hall Council. I'm a programming coordinator. So last semester we had a really fun before finals events, it was swap winter swamp. So, and basically people would come and they would party and there was an open mic and there's live music, coffee, and people could swap stuff. Like people could trade like, hey, oh my God, I really like that shawl of yours. I'll trade my fan for it. You know, there's that kind of interaction and that, and that you don't have to be such a huge consumer to be happy. Like money isn't happiness. Like, and you can form these interpersonal connections with green. And then sometimes green, it, it, seems, it seems so fun that it isn't green. I mean, <laughs> so it's like stuff like fun outdoor sports, like orienteering or just like programming or like just talking green too and like saying, oh my God, have you heard about the ozone layer today? Or have you heard about that really cool <laughs> sea mollusk? And then like connecting the dots and being like, wow, this is green, this is environmental. And then you find this like really innate environmental stewardship that I guess you don't even have to create, you just have, it's, it's in you. My class, uh, Rosemary mentioned DOT, and it, DOT is part of the Alliance for Climate Education uh, campaign, Do One Thing, because this thing, climate becomes so big and so overwhelming, as Bridger mentioned earlier. Does what I do matter? Where do I start? And so Do One Thing is a right. very clever way that you sort of get right. people on the path. Well, it's one of the, it's one of the uh, immediate asks at our assembly presentations. Aside from you know coming in and, and um, forming a club if they don't have a, an environmental club, everybody can do one thing. We think you know one step... Um, taking one step is the the thing that can most um, ensure that you take a second one. And if you take a second one, there's a better chance you're going to take a third one. So, and we don't prescribe what that is. We leave it up to the people. But, but you know, to your point, can this be fun? Um, 
I think that is such a key point because because what we need to recognize is is that um, you know people have different interests, people have different passion, people have different things that motivate them. We share this common bond um, of this risk, but it's important to meet people where they are. Whether you're a performer, right? Whether you're an aeronamicist or an aeronamicist to be a baseball player. Bridger, tell me about his baseball team. Um, we have football teams, you know, plant trees to offset their carbon impact. Uh, we've had fashion shows, you know, put on by students. So whether you're into the science, whether you're into the performing arts, whether you're into athletics, whether you're into civics, um, saving you know, money, to find Some your voice, whether you're into just saving money, mm. absolutely through efficiency, energy efficiency things. You've got to meet people where they're at, and we think that's the best single way to develop this community so that you don't have this feeling of, I'm on my own, what difference can I possibly make? Mm -hmm. You know, we need to draw people and meet them where they're at, and that's what we think is very important that the young people really get and they respond to when you meet them where they're at. If you're just joining us, Mike Haas is the founder of Alliance for Climate Education. Our other guest today at Climate One are Rosemary Davies, a a university student at Chatham University in Pittsburgh and a graduate of Berkeley High School's Green Academy, and Carlene Cullen, founder and executive director of Cool the Earth. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to this and other Climate One shows on iTunes, uh, podcasts on iTunes. Uh, sometimes environmentalism is seen as an elite pursuit. It's for people on the coast. It's for people in upper upper income brackets. Uh, Rosemary Davies, is that true? Is this something that, uh, you know, caring about the environment is a luxury if you've got a job I, and a certain level of living? I think it is because a lot of times when you're on a lower socioeconomic status, when you're poor, climate isn't, isn't really at the top of your list. You're more like, can I meet, can I meet like housing for next week? Can I keep this job? And um, I think that definitely when you, you have wealth and you can, you, can live, you can live well, you have time to think about climate, but and also to be green, too. But the thing is, green applies to all people of all walks of life. So I come from a very frugal family, and we're not exactly very wealthy, but we're not exactly really poor. And it's hard to say if we're middle class or not. But we have an online book business. <laughs> and and it's being green really helps because we, we go to Costco sometimes not to, not to buy, but just to like roam through the aisles and collect cardboard. It's like one of the most fun things ever. It's like shopping for cardboard, but shopping for free. <laughs> and so we use that to wrap our books and it makes the whole process easier for us. And recycling's easy too. Reuse is even easier. So like being, being green is hard when you, when you have so many other things to work for, and it's it's kind of like meeting that paycheck, but but there's a part of green where it's everywhere, everywhere at once. Carlene, are you in liberal upper income neighborhoods and schools? Well, we are in some, yes, and about 30% of our schools are uh, lower income schools, and so we have all of our materials in uh, Mandarin and Spanish and. Uh, we see about the same rate of return of actions from those. But I wanted to say something about the um, elite, the rich, and environmentalism, because I think that was perhaps true 20 years ago or 30 years ago before climate came into the picture. And now, unfortunately, or not, uh, that same group are actually typically the worst carbon offenders. And it's actually the lower in the socioeconomic scale that have a smaller carbon footprint that care a little bit more about their gas bills and their utility bills. And I think that it's the messaging that's appropriate to get to the variety of people. I all the time am talking to foundations or potential funders who are interested in low-income communities. And we feel like the knowledge needs to be there, the education, the opportunity, but that we also really need to address this upper echelon who maybe feel they're green because they're flying to some open space to go hike. And that's a huge carbon footprint. So it's, it's really turned, um, climate change has really turned some of those. We've things. heard about those 8,000 square foot green homes in Marin. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and Mike Haas, also, the people who are on their lower income levels are the most vulnerable to, and they're going to be hit hardest in many respects and have less of a buff, buffering cushion. No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, the science isn't going to care a whole lot of who's 
wealthy or, or not. Um, the wealthy certainly probably are going to be able to, to handle the consequences certainly better than 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 those that are, are less fortunate. Um, but you're absolutely right that it's those that are least equipped to handle this that um, are going to have the hardest time with it, which, again, is why we believe that it's very important um, that everyone has an opportunity to understand what the scientists are saying. Our programs, um, you mentioned the, you know, the left coast and the, and the right coast. Uh, you know, we're in a whole lot of states in between, um, not just the coast, and about two-thirds of the schools that we're, that we, um, go into our public schools, about half of those are on some federal assist for lunch programs, things like that. Um, so we think it's, we think it's actually, you know, which I'm sure you'd agree, it's not one or the other, it's all. That we need to make sure that, you know, those that have the best capacity to handle this understand what's going on and those with the least. And that to solve this problem, we're going to need everybody. We're going to need everybody to understand, everybody to come together. And that includes students. So in some schools, clearly there's a bell curve. There's sort of the middle, and there's some real advocates, uh, people highly engaged, perhaps like Rosemary and Bridger. So are you trying to get a few leaders that then really go on, or are you after the whole population along the spectrum of engagement? Sort of both. We're building a pipeline. So we've been in front of about a million and a half students. Out of those, there's probably... Out of a, a, a typical assembly of ours, a couple hundred students, let's say, five, ten, twenty, twenty-five students will come down afterwards, truly inspired, want to do something, right? And so we focus very much on that group that come down that are inspired after this first memorable experience of the assembly, and we invest heavily to try to help them become leaders where they're at, whether it's in the arts or the athletics or civics or what it is. We support them um, to find where their best opportunities are to become a leader. So we invest heavily post-assembly with those students that come down that, uh, you know, that really want to do something, but through, uh, you know, virtual engagement and sort of grassroots with those leaders, they go back into the schools and engage the rest of the, of the, of the crowd, you know, that, mm-hmm. that hopefully have been, um, introduced to this concept. They're thinking toward that. Our, our analysis, you know, shows that that is indeed the case. But we got these grassroots leaders in the schools that will keep this alive um, after after this first assembly experience. And 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 just uh, one final point: there's something like 20 million high school students at any given time, uh, or if not in high school, unfortunately some of them not. But in this sort of age range, 14 to 18, so 20 million, five million a year, you know, entering our civic society. Um, and so we think it is so important to make sure the young people um, have a chance to make this a priority. That's why we're happy to see so many young people in the room uh, and on stage. You know, we often, I sit here and talk to people with gray hair like me, and we're talking about the future, but they're not part of the conversation or they're, or they're, or they're not in, in the room. So we're especially pleased to have you all here uh, today. We're going to go to audience questions in a minute, but first I want to ask you about your own carbon uh footprint and your own lifestyle. So what have you done? I, I have to leave now. Carlene, uh, I saw you park Sorry. that. I saw you drive up in a Hummer, Carlene. So uh, tell us what you've done. My helicopter dropped me off. Yes, we do have a helipad on the roof. So uh, tell us uh, what you've done about your own personal carbon footprint. Yeah. Well, uh, so when we started Cool the Earth, it was about the same time that we decided that we wanted to move to solar PV on our rooftop. Uh, and that we also wanted to have an expandable uh, rack that we could add more if we decided to buy an electric vehicle, uh, which we did five weeks ago, and I love it. Uh, so if you haven't tried one, you definitely should. It's fantastic. And you have a Nissan Leaf, which have I have. a Nissan yeah. Leaf, drove in from Marin with a few other people, and it was fantastic. Um, so, you know, we tried to attack some of the big things that we could do first, um, and then in, in small ways throughout the day, you know, making sure we cold water wash, all those things that you would expect that one would do. Um, but I think perhaps the most important thing I do with my carbon footprint is that we've reached 250,000 kids and their families who have taken a quarter million actions. And I think that that's, you know, personally probably the most the most valuable thing. Uh, that's great. Food, transportation, solar. Where a lot of people get hung up on this is air travel flying. and, and yeah. flying. I'm, I'm guilty of this as anyone. I've uh, done all those things, electric car, yeah. less meat, solar yeah. on the roof. But, you know, we've taken some discretionary family trips, which, mm-hmm. honestly, we maybe, you know, didn't need well, to take. Yeah, no, it's travel, air travel is by far the biggest problem, I think, and the things that we don't have many options for. 
we do things that my kids really dislike, but when we go see the grandparents in L.A., we drive our Prius. And, you know, they're sitting here going, everybody else is flying. And, but, you know, we can get there on about a tank of gas. Uh-huh. And so we make all of those trips. We try to really make anything that's reasonable uh, that we drive the, uh, the, the gas guzzler of the Prius. My kids are looking on with worry, but oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, Rosemary? Uh, I'm guilty of air travel, too, because I'm across the country in Pennsylvania, so I have to take a plane here and I'll have to take a plane back. But <laughs> definitely my university has been really paramount in, in being green and making the students kind of green, too. We don't sell bottled water. We All our food in our cafeteria is organic and it's locally produced. We also have a, we're also having our first sustainable campus called Eden Hall. It's going to come about in the next 10 years. And it's really neat because it's going to be zero net energy, which I'm looking forward to. Although I'm sure that I'm going to be an alumni by then and be old and wrinkled, but. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but it's going <laughs> to take some time. And, but also, like, my student ID is a bus pass, so I take the bus a lot, Port Authority to, like, wherever. Like, there's so many districts in Pittsburgh. I can't even, like, name them all. But, and then also, just, there's a lot of initiatives on campus, and nearly everyone you meet is going to be an environmentalist. We're also, one of our main alumni is Rachel Carson, so she's definitely left a lasting impact. Even our mascot is called Carson the Cougar, so I mean, it's, it's hard. It would be hard not to be green there. Mike Haas, what have you done? A uh, lot will repeat some of the same. Uh, well, you've only, also built only, only shower about every three days, which drives my wife <laughs> drives my wife kind of nuts. The boys, don't, the boys don't mind. But, um, no, but 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 seriously, I, I think that you know it is important to sort of walk the you know to to, to walk the right way. Um, but I also believe that we're not going to crack this through conservation. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Um, we're going to have to crack this, I think, through legislation. I think this is a big enough challenge that we've got it to get there through legislation, not just through conservation. Don't get me wrong. We should all be doing everything that we possibly can. And so I feel the same way that Carlene, that I feel like the, you know, the, the most important thing that I'm doing is trying to uh, bridge the gap, as I said earlier, between what the scientists understand and what the public understands and focusing on young people. Um, because again, you can have you and me sitting up there, no offense, you know, but, yeah. but, um, you take a bridger and you take some of the young people, uh, that we've worked with, then they move the room. And there's still an element of we gotta pull up the heartstrings on this one. So, to have a chance of, of addressing this right, I think we've got to build the will, we've got to make this a priority, and, and, uh, I'll continue showering only every few days, but that's the most important thing that I'm gonna try to keep doing. Alright, I think I'll join you. Okay. Uh, let's invite audience participation. Uh, we're going to put it, we have a microphone here, and we're going to uh, invite you to come up and present one, one part uh, question or comment. Uh, this is often the most lively part of it, and we encourage you, if anyone's uh, a student in the audience, a little bit reticent, we're really, really happy to see you uh, participate in this. Uh, and once the first student steps up, others will likely follow. So encourage that mm-hmm. first brave one. Um, so let's include our audience questions. Well, yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you very much. As a aged student, uh, Mike and Carlene, hi guys. Um, I've heard you talk a lot about solutions and things, but what I haven't heard tonight about is adaptation. And I'm curious how you're incorporating the adaptation adaptation message uh, with our young folks. Adaptation being bracing for impacts sure. that are coming our way, regardless. Mike, I'll take a quick start. Uh, uh, we're really focused on mitigation. I mean, to us, it's it's about mitigation. However, you're absolutely right that we're shooting straight with young people. They deserve that. Um, um, and but we believe that if we focus on, um, you know, what the scientists are saying, things that they can do, um, you know, they will also learn about uh, certain consequences that we may not be able to to get in front of. But it's all about mitigation. But by learning how important this is. You learn sort of about the consequences and what people can to deal with it. But we believe that, you know, for every everything we can do to mitigate, um, it's going to pay off 
multiples and factors in terms of having to deal with adaptation. So we're really all about mitigation. And mitigation is one of those Latin-rooted words, which means like reducing the, the actual yeah, reducing CO2. So so it's all about trying to to bring down levels of CO2, and that's what our focus is. But they understand obviously that if we you know if we don't, um, that there's going to be a whole lot more adapting to do. But we we don't want to go there yet. Carlene Cullen. Yes. Um, so we also are largely a mitigation program. So you know, actions and attitudes. But with the parents, we have oftentimes taken an additional approach, which is to uh, talk to them about adaptation. One of my favorite things to do is uh, in the Bay Area is to get the BCDC map of the flood zones and to have this out at a fundraiser or a little party. And, you know, you see everybody with their up-close magnifying glass trying to identify where their house is and if it will be underwater. And it is one of the best tools to get people to start mitigating uh, because they start learning about what are we going to have to do personally to adapt and what, what's the whole Bay Area going to have to do. There's also one of those Bay Conservation and Development Commission maps that has the headquarters of the technology companies. And that gets your attention when you see where Yahoo and Oracle and Google are relative to sea level rise. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Tivon. Um, I was just wondering if you guys do private schools yet, like Cool the Earth? Yes, yes. We we like all schools. So uh, private schools, public schools, Montessori schools. We yeah, any sort of. Uh, K, we're K through eight. Um, so uh, we, we'd love to uh, to bring your school right. in. And what grade are you in? May we ask? I'm in six, and I I went to Wade Thomas last year, so we had Cool the Earth. Okay. Great. Thanks for coming to Climate One. Let's have Thank our you. next uh, next audience question. Hi, I'm Edmund, and I'm in 11th grade. Um, so I'm I'm in my Green Academy at my high school, and in our Green Academy, we learn about how small actions can contribute to like a big impact. And I was just wondering, um, what do you expect in the next 10 to 20 years? Maybe what your little actions can how how they can affect uh, impact the, p- the future. Rosemary? Okay, so it's really true. Like, alone we're just but a drop, but together we're like a flood. Um, so, like, what we do right now, like, like shutting off the lights when we don't need them, like, like the do one thing, like vampire, I think it's like vampire... Vampire slayers. Vampire slayers, yeah, being a vampire slayer. I like, like being vampires conscious are, are Explain what vampires are. Oh, vampires basically, um, when you put your plug-in to this out socket and you're not really needing it, it's still using energy, so you're going to unplug that sucker right out and save energy, which is good. <laughs> In general, I mean, there's no bad things, right, about, about conserving energy, which is good. But And then we were already seeing, like, impacts of what, like, the past has done, and we can certainly see those in the future, like with bioaccumulation, especially in the Arctic, because a lot of, like, the wind and ocean currents bring a lot of that pollution in. So we're definitely seeing impacts there, and also in hunting and the species distribution. Like, there's tons of impacts that we're already seeing and what we can also expect to see in the future, although we hope to mitigate that as, as a whole generation and as a whole past generation, too, because we still have everyone with us. Rosemary Davies is a graduate of Berkeley High School Green Academy uh, here at Climate One today. Did you have anything to add? Oh, I was just going to say that I think um, as new technologies are developed, uh, ones that are already present and emerging and new ones coming forward, those will become the norm. And the younger generation will just see those as basic as having an iPhone, and that's not going to be anything out of the norm. And, you know, one of the best things was my 11-year-old daughter uh, had a friend over last week, and I was upstairs, and I heard her say to another friend, hey, you guys got to come see this car. It's totally sick. And it was my leap that they were going out to see. And, you know, here's some 11-year-old girls, a sick thing, a good thing, and, uh, you know, wanting to see this, this, this great car. And so I think that that's kind of what's happening, and that's what's going to be emerging as we go forward. Fantastic. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. Uh, thank you. I'm Mina, and I'm a 10th grader at the Comerding High School. I am a co-leader of our environmental club, and we've been having little um, issues getting off the ground. 
I think a big a big problem for us is that our school is actually pretty green already. We have a big emphasis on it in our classes, um, some of our mandatory classes. There's a big unit on climate change. And um, I feel like a big problem for our school is that students, they think, oh, recycling, reducing, oh, turn off the lights, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, well, how does this affect anything? And everything green just turns into sort of like this big mosh. And they're like, they don't understand like the connection between not using that extra piece of paper and the world in general. And they think, well, since our school is already doing such a good job because, oh, look, there's solar panels on our roofs. We don't have to do anything. And it's kind of like this attitude where they're like, oh, well, look, we're doing pretty well. We're in San Francisco. We're not in, like, oh, say, that state over there where, oh, they've never even heard of green energy, you know? And um, I was just wondering your thoughts on sort of, like, bring sort of motivation. Thank you. Yeah, so there's... If you do one green deed, does that buy you a license to do all sorts of other things? Not at all. I think green is green is not like a point in time. It's more like a process, and it's more of a goal. And so I think it's hard when you're in like a community that like already has that like label of being green to like burst that bubble and be like, oh my god, there there's communities that that don't know what green is, or like that, oh my god, I'm still having an impact here. Or, like, getting out in the community where people really haven't really heard the word green and haven't made the connection. And also maintaining what green is and trying to still remain a steward and and retain that responsibility. Because as green as you are, you're still going to have an impact. And and if I could maybe just add to that. uh, Please come wherever uh, you want. Please come and talk to me after this. Because one of the best things you can do is... is, uh, you know, be a leader to others. So if your school's doing great, I would suggest there's probably still more to be done, but one of the best things you can do is be a model school. Um, this is all about storytelling, and a lot of other high schools can get inspired by what you've done. Um, when they see that there's young people, you know, at a different school doing this stuff, you can be a leader. And so, um, and we can help you do that. So that's one of the, the best things you can do is just be a, be a role model for other schools and, and tell the story right to them, um, to inspire them to, to come up to, to your level. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. Andrea Wallace. I'm Montgomery High School in Santa Rosa. Uh, I'm also the president of our green team there. So We actually just had a waste audit in 12-12-12, and that was a lot of fun, sorting through trash. And, <laughs> and we actually recently just put in compost bins. So Nice, a waste audit and compost bins. All right. I, I actually um, had a couple questions. Uh, that's all right. Um, what about putting solar panels on airplanes? And the other one was uh, the vacuumed air blimps. Mike Haas, you're the PhD up here, so uh, that's no, never, uh, almost, never, okay. never, never that's finished it. Technology. Never finished it. Drop well, you're, you're uh, you know, slightly hard to imagine, but but let me say this: that is exactly you've demonstrated exactly a point, and and this age group, right, that we're kind of talking about, um, don't quash them, don't hold them back, give them the information. Let them know what's out there and let them innovate. Let them put their creativity, their innovative spirit to use. And I may sit here and say, well, I don't see that happening. Um, and there's going to be some 14 or 15-year-old that's going to crack it if that's a good idea. So, so the solutions that will come from young people who recognize um, that this is a way to help solve this problem, right, I can't even imagine what those look like. What I know is there's plenty we can do right now today. We don't have to wait. Um, but the creativity and the innovative spirit that's going to come from this age group that do not like the word no, right? Don't want to. Hear, I didn't like it a long time ago when I was that age, and that hadn't changed. Um, they don't like to hear the word no. Um, they're going to innovate out of this, but they've got to understand what's at stake and that there are paths to get there. Fabulous. Let's. Hi, welcome to Climate One. Step up to the mic. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. I'm one of the other leaders of Lick Wilmerding High School's Environmental Club, and I also agree that we've had some trouble. But this question's a bit different. Like, I heard that it's important to get legislation through on all these topics, like how they're talking about the legislation of the XL pipeline 
and stuff like that. How can young kids like us get involved in the legislative side of it since, like, I only recently turned 18 and finally got to vote, but I know a lot of kids who are younger than me who know just about as much as I know, maybe more about some of these topics, but because they aren't 18 yet, they aren't able to put any of their influence into legislation, and I just wondered if there's a way that we can get our voices heard in the legislative side. You write a letter to your congressman, but don't put your age on it, but yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, one, one thing I would say first is, uh, you know, we, we don't view this as a political issue. This is a human issue. Um, but, you know, I did say that I believe that this is something that we're going to need our leaders to, to help solve, and it has to be solved through, through legislation, civic engagement. This isn't just a science education. There's a civics education here as well. Um, you know, as Carleen said, uh, you can't vote yet if you're less than 18. Uh, family, friends, others, talk to them about it. You'll be surprised how receptive parents are when their kids come up to them and and want to talk about something. I'm finding it myself, you know, with, with my kids. Um, and, you know, furthermore, you're not that far, you know, from when you'll be able to, to sort of be able to exercise your democratic rights. And then lastly, and this is one of the things that we do with high school students, we plug them into organizations so that as they, as you do become a bit older, a lot of options out there, a lot of organizations that will give a chance if, if civics, if activism is a path that you want to blossom into in terms of your own leadership, what you're going to do about this, lots of organizations and groups that are out there and, and, um, and again, opportunities that we try to point out to, to young people to, to be able to engage. Carleen Cullen? Yeah. I think also I would say uh, Google. That would be the first thing I would do is, you know, go online, find other youth groups that are taking action, join in. There's a, a XL pipeline uh, a protest coming up uh, in very soon. I forgot the exact date of it. Uh, there's one in D.C., and there's one also here in San Francisco. So join in on those things. You don't have to be a certain age. I bring right. my kids all the time, and, you know, they're young. They, uh, so just showing up in person to support some of these initiatives, that's something that you can do at any age. I agree mm-hmm. with Carlene, too, because, like, protest is a really important part of social change because the government is for and by the people. And one way that, like, you can get involved is, like, at marches, like, I remember there was an I Matter march like a year ago that I went to, and that really like like put me on the front lines. And like although I couldn't vote at the time, you were still involved. So it's important to look at that opportunity too. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. My name is Clara Vondrich. Um, all of you, thank you for what you're doing. It's so important. And Rosemary in particular, I just wanted to say that you are so inspiring. Um, please keep your idealism, because uh, I came out of high school all fired up as well, and I still am fired up, but it's amazing how after the years and being in the quote-unquote real world, you start to get pressured to adapt your views and to be a little bit less idealistic. So I'm just encouraging you to keep that up. Um, My question is about Bill McKibben. He's one of my big heroes, and I understand that he's going around college campuses all around the country, and he's um, making quite a splash with young people. And I wanted to hear whether that's in fact true, whether you have had experience um, getting involved with 350.org, and also whether you know about his divestiture campaign where he's urging colleges across the country to eliminate their investments in fossil fuel energy sources and what you think about that. Unfortunately, I... Unfortunately, he hasn't come to my campus yet. I really wish, um, hopefully in the future. But I have heard of 350.org, and it's the parts per billion of carbon dioxide are going up, too. So it's getting a little crazy, but hopefully we can get to that optimal point again. Oh, hope is out there. Um, but I think... The divestiture campaign is also something, the idea that colleges not invest their endowment funds in fossil fuel companies. Yes. That's something that... yeah. Rosemary? Oh, yeah, my, my um, university also purchases a lot, of, um, a lot of green power, especially from wind, ener- wind energy, and we also have solar thermal on top of two of our residence halls. But there is a point where we're still trying to go green, and we're still trying to get more connected with a community that doesn't have as much, like, options yet. And to 
I guess, to spread green across the world for it to be as contagious as the flu. Yeah. We're right here at the end, but last word, Carleen? Oh, I just to comment on the uh, divestiture program by Bill McKibben. And it was interesting. I read an article in the New York Times uh, analyzing this. And while this worked with South Africa and apartheid, uh, there's a lot of skepticism that universities won't be able to actually do this because of the big oil money that's necessary for their portfolios, et cetera. But I think, like Mike was saying earlier, I'm like, you know, to, can I say this, hell with the practicalities. We've got a crisis here. We have to do something. We need everybody on deck, and we need to try all options. Mike Oss, last word. Um, 350 is an example of a group that, again, when we're with young people, it's exactly what we're trying to do. We try to make sure they're aware of all these different groups you know, that can meet them where they're at. It's so important to meet them where they're at. And that's an example of a group where, again, um, we help point them to. So it's, it's extraordinarily important, 350 and all kinds of groups that are doing great things. Our thanks to Mike Haas, founder of the Alliance for Climate Education, Rosemary Davies, a student at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Carleen Cullen, founder and executive director of Cool the Earth Campaign. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today.